All right, church. Well, I would like to start this morning by asking you a question and having you silently ponder and consider it for a moment. Uh, And that question is, does God want us to be happy? Think about that for a little bit. Does God want us to be happy? And it really should be a a simple question to answer, Uh, but in our minds, we, we feel like we have to provide maybe a lot of clarifications and exceptions to this because that word happiness has been used and abused. Uh, Many of us have sat with people who have decided to chase after the fleeting pleasures of sin and have tried to justify and excuse themselves by saying, well, I know God wants me to be happy. So I'm going to go do this or that. So I'm not going to take your counsel. I know that God wants me to be happy, so I'm going to run from him. And so what some Christians have done, and maybe you've, you've heard teaching like this before, it's not necessarily wrong, I just don't know if it's best, but a lot of Christians now have tried to differentiate between joy and happiness to try to kind of keep those two things their own separate thing. And so you've probably heard things taught or, or written about how joy is, is the very Christian and proper thing that we should experience that is deep and spiritual and very respectable. That's, that's joy, right? It's very, very good. And, but then happiness is this foolish, fleeting, superficial, wishy-washy thing, and there's no way that God wants us to be happy. He just wants us to be holy, and there's no way those two things can coexist or should be complementing one another. And so I agree on one hand, if we want to define happiness as a superficial emotion that is completely dependent upon our circumstances, then, then yes, it's probably fine to differentiate joy and happiness, if that's our understanding of happiness. But church, we do not see that differentiation between joy and happiness in God's word. The Bible uses joyfulness and happiness and blessedness interchangeably throughout the scriptures. And so let me encourage you this morning to not, to not surrender that word happiness to others. Let's not throw that word out happy altogether. Because it actually is a great word that can help bridge the gap from what people desire to what God offers them. You see, true happiness is not found chasing after the fleeting pleasures of sin. No, real happiness is deep, and it is durable, and it comes from God. Real happiness is deep and durable, and it comes from God. And so when we find ourselves and others saying, I know that God wants me to be happy, we actually don't have to reject that statement outright. But instead, we can point people and ourselves to the God who gives happiness and in whose presence there is fullness of joy. 
You see, the lie that, our, that ourselves and others believe is that happiness is found by running away from God and His Word. But true happiness, happiness that is real and deep and durable, is found in God's presence, and it's found in God's ways. And so if happiness is found in the presence of God, the question must be asked, how do we have a right standing in the presence of God? Enter the book of Romans, right? So I'd invite you to open up to Romans chapter 4 as we continue preaching through Paul's letter to the Romans. And we've titled our, our sermon series in Romans, Righteousness Revealed. Righteousness Revealed. And let's define some terms to, as a way of reminder. That word righteousness, we'll have this up on the screen. That word righteousness means to have a good or right standing before God. Right? Most simply put, it means to be right with God, to stand right with God. And in the first three chapters of Romans, we learn that because of sin, none of us have a right standing with God. And none of us have the power or strength to obtain a right standing with God. And not only do we not have a right standing with God, but in fact, we stand condemned before God. We stand as ones deserving of God's wrath. And we've learned that this is why the gospel is a necessary gospel, church. It's not just a nice gospel, right? When you don't hear the full story from preachers about sin and wrath and condemnation, the gospel just seems sort of nice. It's a nice gospel for nice people. But Paul's like, no, no, no. This is not a nice gospel. This is a necessary gospel for sinful, ungodly people, unrighteous people. For all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God, and you stand condemned before God, and you who stand condemned before God, you need to be justified. And remember what we learned a couple of weeks ago about that word justified. We'll define this up on the screen here as well. To be justified means to be declared righteous in God's sight. So to be righteous means to have a right standing before God. To be justified means God has declared you stand right with him. And God accomplishes this through his glorious gospel where on the cross he took our sin and gave us his righteousness so that he could be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And so that's a, that's a quick recap of where we've been in Romans. To be justified by faith, it is, a, it is a glorious truth. But the Romans, they were, they were human beings like us, and as human beings, they, they needed some real-life examples of what this looks like. And so Paul is going to give them some real-life examples. He's going to point them to Abraham. He's going to point them to David. And as we see these examples, as we see how they were justified and what this justification produced in them, as this gets uncovered to us in Romans 4, we will start to see that God does desire us to be happy. But he knows that we will only find a lasting happiness in him. So let's pray and let's ask the Lord to bless our time as we look at his word. Father, this is your word, and these are your people. And Lord, we beg you that you would help and empower me to be a, a faithful messenger, uh, 
a willing vessel to have your truth, Lord, come out and be proclaimed to your people. The prophet Jeremiah said that that he found your words, O Lord, and he ate them, and your words became to him a joy and the delight of his heart. Lord, may that be true of us this morning. May we find and hear and receive your words. May we feast on them. May your words become to us a joy and the delight of our hearts. For we are called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. Help us, Lord. Help us know you and love you. Be changed by you this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 4. In the first century uh, Judaism, in first century Judaism, there was a teaching amongst the rabbis and a belief amongst some of the people that Abraham was the ultimate example of righteousness. All right? So it's not a surprise that Paul's going to take us there to look at Abraham. Right? This was, he was the ultimate example of righteousness. In fact, some rabbis taught from the book of Jubilees that Abraham was perfect in all his dealings. And he gained favor with the Lord by his righteousness. One prayer book even concluded that Abraham never had need of repentance. And so you understand kind of the the wrong belief that Paul is coming against. And it's this belief that Abraham was justified by his works or by his obedience. And Paul says no, and he writes Romans 4, and this is what he writes. Romans 4, verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He's saying if Abraham was declared right before God by what he did, then he has something to boast about. But... No one has anything to boast about in the presence of God except Christ and his cross. And so if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but he doesn't. And Paul's like, hey, if you don't believe me, what does the Old Testament scripture say? Verse 3, he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is a a quote from Genesis 15. If you later today want to go read the story of Abraham, go start back in Genesis 12, uh, where his name was still Abram. I'll probably keep calling him Abraham, but in Genesis 12, his name's still Abram, which means exalted father, and God changes it in Genesis 17 to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. But back in Genesis 12, that's where the story starts uh, with Abraham. God calls Abraham out of the region of Mesopotamia where his family worshipped false gods. And God calls him to leave his family. God calls him to leave his idolatry. And he makes him some great promises. He promises him land. He promises him offspring that will become a great nation. And that in Abraham's offspring, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed which we now see and are a part of this coming true in Christ. God makes him some great promises. 
Abraham then travels to the land that God promised, and he experiences a famine in the land. Probably not the first thing he was expecting. He then goes down to Egypt to get some food. And in Egypt, he lies about Sarah being his wife, and I'm not going to make, or about being his sister, and I'm not going to make a joke about that, because last time I did, I kind of fell apart, and it didn't, it wasn't good. But he, you know that whole thing with Pharaoh and Sarah, and, uh, and that all gets sorted out, and, and uh, God sends plagues on Pharaoh and on Egypt, and, and, and they end up coming out of Egypt with great possessions, uh, kind of foreshadowing what was going to happen later to the people of God. We then see Abraham and, and Lot, they go their separate ways, Lot gets captured, he rescues Lot, the mysterious Melchizedek comes into the scene, right? Which you can listen in our Hebrews series to listen about Melchizedek. But then we finally get to Genesis 15. And if you want to read more about Abraham, go do that today. But we get to Genesis 15. Abraham, by this point, has acquired many possessions, livestock, riches, but he has no children. And God comes to him in Genesis 15, verse 1, which we'll have up on the screen. And it says, After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be, uh, will be, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now Abraham is, is pretty old at this point. God has made a promise, but he hasn't seen any progress in that area of having kids. And I love this, that God brings him outside and he says, look towards the heaven and heavens and number the stars. He says, you're going to have a multitude of kids, of grandkids and great grandkids. And I think this is so gracious of God of, uh, to take him outside and to have him look up at the stars because he's made a promise to abraham but abraham can't see any signs of this promise being fulfilled and but but what has god graciously given him to look at he's given him the stars he's given him his creation which we learned in Romans 1, that God's invisible attributes, right? His eternal power and divine nature have been seen through the things that have been made. Abraham looks up at the stars, and this isn't, this isn't stargazing in the middle of New York City. This is, this is stargazing before electricity, and he gazes out at the stars and he beholds the glory and the majesty of God's creation and what he has made and he believes. You think about how difficult it would have been for him to believe that he was going to have a son, that he was going to have a multitude of kids and grandkids. But God had also given him the stars. 
And these stars did not exist until God spoke them into existence. And if God can speak the stars and the sky into existence, He can surely do for you what He has promised. And so listen, if you're struggling to believe the Lord, this would be my advice to you. My advice would be to stop just looking up and staring at man-made drywall or ceiling tiles. If you're struggling with believing God, stop just staring at man-made shows and movies. Go outside and stare up at the God-made sky. Wake up and watch a God-made sunrise. It's there every morning. And it's happening somewhere all the time. Walk in the woods and see what God has made by simply speaking it into existence. And you'll find that many times by considering God's creation, your faith will be strengthened. Your faith will be strengthened as you consider what God has made by speaking it into existence. But Paul's, Paul's point here is that Abraham looked and he believed the Lord and it was through faith that God justified him. Right? That's his point. It wasn't, it wasn't later in Genesis. It wasn't his circumcision, which would happen later, that justified him. It wasn't his offering up of Isaac, which happens later in Genesis, that would justify him. It wasn't those acts of obedience that followed that justified him. It was through believing God. It was through faith. Look back at Romans 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's saying, hey, for the one who works for their justification, what God gives him is what God owes him, and it's therefore not a gift. But we know, and we've been taught, that justification is a, is a gracious gift of God. Why? Well, look what he says. He says, God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. Now, this would have been a bit of a shock because he's implying that Abraham was ungodly. He's implying that all of us are ungodly, which simply means living with no regard for God. And this was... This was true of all of us and Abraham until God calls us, right? Abraham was worshiping other false gods before God called him. We were worshiping creation instead of creator before God called us. And there's no amount of good works or obedience that could justify us for all have sinned and continually fall short of the glory of God. And so we, as ones who are ungodly, should not want what God owes us. Because what he owes us is rightful condemnation and wrath. But to really understand the heart of this passage, Paul, we have to understand another word. Paul uses a word five times in six verses. And anytime you see repetition in the Bible, that is trying to get your attention, all right? 
He uses a word five times in six verses that is a key to understanding this passage, and that is the word that shows up in the ESV as counted or count. Some of your translations might say reckoned or imputed, right? It's an, it's an accounting term. And what it means, all right, what this word count, reckon, impute, we'll have it up on the screen here. What it means is to take something that belongs to someone else and credit it to another's account. Right? To take something that belongs to someone else and credit it to another's account. All right, so what he is saying is this. Abraham did not have an inherent righteousness of his own, but God took God's righteousness and credited it to Abraham's account and then treated him accordingly. You see, God counted it to him. God reckoned it to him. God imputed it to him, a righteousness that was not inherently in him. He was ungodly. He was bankrupt. He was under wrath and condemnation, just like all of us. But God credits to him God's own righteousness and then treats him and interacts with him accordingly. And so here's where some of you miss out on being happy in God. And it's when you wrongly believe that God owes you your justification. Your view of justification is, is a little off. It's blurry. It's fuzzy. And so you think because of how you've lived and how you've read your Bible and how you've done this and that, that God owes you your justification. And this is sometimes hard to diagnose even in ourselves because most of us, we've been in church long enough, we wouldn't actually say that out loud. But if you're trying to diagnose if this is maybe in you this morning, maybe ask yourself, uh, do you feel like God owes you other things in life? Do you sense that you have a spirit of entitlement in you? That, that God maybe owes you a better job. You've put in the time. Can't believe he has not given it to you. Maybe you think that God owes you better health. I mean, you've tried to eat healthy and exercise, do all the things. You think God owes you better health. Maybe you think God owes you better friendships. Or he owes you a spouse. Or he owes you a child. Or he owes you more success. More success. You think maybe he owes you uh, to, to, to give you more influence in life. More control. More fame. More fun. More comfort. More pleasure. And maybe, yeah, you, you know you shouldn't actually say that out loud. But you functionally live like God owes you something. And then how do you live when you think God owes you? something. When, when, I mean, just think, think between us, right? When someone owes you something that you think you need for happiness, how do you live? How do you act? Uh, for example, if I owed you a hundred dollars, you know, and you really needed a hundred dollars to buy something that you wanted and thought would make you happy, how would you interact and treat me? You'd probably be a little impatient with me, right? Like, come on, man, every time you see me, hey, okay, I wonder if he's going to pay me back now. Come on, I need, I, need, I need paid back. You owe me. 
you probably would start to get a little bit of an underlying grudge or anger or resentment towards me, right? You'd probably be ungrateful and blind to all the other kindnesses I might bring to you. I mean, maybe I have you over every Friday night and we make steak and lobster for you, but the whole time you're just kind of brewing about this $100 that I haven't paid you back. And listen, one of the reasons we miss out on being happy in God is because some of us treat God this way. Like he owes us. Eating steak and lobster, wondering where that hundred bucks is that he still needs to give us. But a right understanding of our justification can transform every aspect of our life and it can cultivate a happiness in God that is deep and that is durable. You see, when God credits to our account, God credits to our account a righteousness that was not inherently in us, when he does that, there are two different ways that someone can put money into your account. That's what Paul is trying to help us see, all right? So maybe you've seen, okay, he's credited, he's, he's put something in my account, but Paul's now saying, hey, there's two different ways that you can get something into your account. One way is by earning it, and one way is from a gift, Right? So there's, you, you could work for your, your payday that comes you know, every other Friday or whenever you get paid, and, and that amount then shows up in your account. That's what you've earned and worked for. And then sometimes stuff shows up in your account because you've had a birthday or a holiday. Someone has just gifted you something. And Paul is trying to help us see here the difference. Now, if it's, a, if it's something that we have earned, something that we've worked for, then maybe it is appropriate to negotiate, right? I mean, some of you, right, at times, it's appropriate to negotiate your salary, right? I mean, you sit down with your boss, talk about inflation, putting in more, you know, putting in more work this year, things like this are happening, right? That's, that's semi-appropriate. But we all know that would be uncalled for after a relative has given you a gift to call them up and explain to them, you know, hey, aunt and uncle, so-and-so, appreciate that check you gave me. Um, I'm not sure if you're aware, but there's inflation going on right now. And I've actually had a pretty good year. Uh, and actually, the older you get, sometimes you need more money and things like this. So can we negotiate that gift you just gave me? We, we all know that's ridiculous, right? Through faith in Christ, you've gone from spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual billionaire status. But if you think that you did something to earn that, you will live like God still owes you. And you'll always be disappointed. You'll always be discontent. You'll always be impatient with him. You'll develop a low-grade temperature of anger and resentment towards him. You'll cultivate a spirit of entitlement in you that will blind you to all the other kindnesses that God has brought into your life. But church, our justification is not what is owed to us. It is not the wages that we have earned. It's in fact the exact opposite 
Our justification is the greatest gift we could have ever received. And when our justification comes into proper focus, you know, it's almost like when you go to the eye doctor and they, they kind of put the, the lenses in front of you and, and things start coming into focus. When justification starts coming into focus, we start seeing this gracious, generous gift that God has brought us. We can now start seeing clearly all these other gifts that God gives us as well. You see, when we see our justification as a gracious gift, then we will be able to see and receive from God everything as a gift. Now, some are more bitter and some are more sweet. But all that comes to us has passed through the sovereign and the gracious hands of God. And we believe that God justifies the ungodly through faith in Jesus Christ, who counts our sin to Christ upon the cross, and Christ's righteousness is now counted to us. And now our God, therefore, treats us accordingly as ones who have the righteousness of Christ in our accounts. And if you don't believe that righteousness has been credited to your account, you will forever be insecure in your standing with God. You will forever be anxious and unsure of how he is dealing with you. But God wants you to look at your spiritual bank account and be happy. He does. I mean, haven't you at times received a gift or maybe a refund or something like this And you look at your account, and you're happy. God wants you to see your right standing with him and rejoice. God wants you to be happy in him. And now he's going to take us to the example of David. And let's see how David understands his account. All right? Looking back at Romans 4, verse 6. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Right? David here is used as another example of obtaining righteousness through faith. A righteousness that was counted to him apart from works. Now let me make a quick note because as I'm reading this and as many of you are reading this, you know, other places of scripture are starting to kind of come in our heads and we're wondering how they all line up and things like that. And in James chapter 2, on the surface, there seems to be a contradictory teaching between faith and works and justification and how all these things relate to one another. And a, a very brief response to that would be, we can certainly sit down and talk more about it, but a very brief response would be, at the heart of it, two things that are true cannot in actuality be contradictions, right? Romans and James are not contradictory texts. They are complementary. And in interpreting scripture, before you pluck a verse here and a verse here and have them fight each other, you need to ask what the writer is primarily trying to teach. And so maybe this will be helpful. Martin Luther and the Reformers will have, will have a quote. It's a quote I've shared before from them. Uh, Martin Luther and the Reformers uh, often would say, a justification is by faith alone but not by a faith that is alone. 
So very simply put, Paul writing to the Romans is primarily trying to teach the first part of that sentence. He's primarily trying to teach justification is by faith alone. James is primarily trying to teach, but not by a faith that is alone. Okay? And we will preach through James at some point. But we're in Romans 4. And we got to know first that justification is by faith alone. The crediting of righteousness to our account, accounts, the declaration that we are righteous is through faith alone. And David here, has a, as a man who has committed great sins, he says, this is a quote from Psalm 32, right, which was preached last week for us. He quotes Psalm 32 here in Romans 4, verse 7. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. This word blessed is a word that means happy. And again, we can, we can nitpick how we're going to define happiness if we're sticking with a definition of happiness that is superficial, dependent on circumstances, flighty, things like this. That's not what we're talking about. Real happiness is deep and durable, and it's found in God. So durable, in fact, that it will be there even in suffering. This is a happiness that can be there even when we are insulted and persecuted. Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 11, He says, blessed or happy are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I mean, that's the kind of happiness or blessedness or joyfulness we're talking about, right? We're not talking about the fleeting pleasures of sin. We're talking about the happiness and the blessedness that is found in God and most specifically is found when we have a right standing with God. When our sins are not counted against us, but instead Christ's righteousness is credited to us and God treats us accordingly and all the rewards that that will bring us. Right? David says, blessed are those, happy are those. And then he says three times in three different ways, right? He says, happy are those whose law-breaking is forgiven. Happy are those whose sins are covered. Happy are those whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Church, are you experiencing the happiness that the gift of justification should be producing in your life? The happiness, the blessedness of sins being forgiven, sins being covered, your sins never being counted against you. Church, your justification, it is, it is a gift by God's grace. It's not something you were owed. And everything God gives you is a gift. So therefore, you don't need to hold a grudge against God 
You don't need to be disappointed with God. You don't need to have a spirit of entitlement towards God. Those things have all stolen your happiness in God. But once you see your justification as a gracious gift, now everything you receive from Him, you can now receive with gratitude and thanksgiving for both the bitter and the sweet gifts that He gives. Because, church, in Christ, your sins are forgiven. You don't have to live in your past. You don't have to dwell on past mistakes and missteps. God has let those go. They have been forgiven in Christ. Church, in Christ, your sins are now covered. You don't have to waste your time and energy running, hiding, blaming, trying to cover them up yourselves. Trust that Christ has provided you your covering. Church, your sins will now never be counted against you. You've gone from spiritual bankruptcy to spiritual billionaire status in Christ. There's nothing the enemy can now accuse you of that Christ has already decided to not count against you. And I'm telling you, if you actually believe what this says, and if you actually ask the Lord, To help you believe, right? I mean, so many times a normal prayer is, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Lord, I believe, help our unbelief. Because as we believe this more and more, through faith, we'll experience more and more happiness in Him. Blessedness in Him. Joyfulness in Him. Lord, we believe this, but help our unbelief. At the end of Psalm 32, where Paul quotes, and it was preached last week, David writes this in Psalm 32, verse 11. He writes, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. That's Psalm 32, 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. This is a command, church. Be glad in the Lord. And all the commands of God need to be taken seriously. Just like God has told us to not murder, to not commit adultery, to not steal, God has told us to be glad in Him. But so often we neglect this command to be glad in the Lord. Charles Spurgeon, in in writing in his letters to his students, he tries to get his students to at least brighten up and be glad when they talk about heaven, right? And he writes, When you speak of heaven, let your face light up with a heavenly gleam. Let your eyes shine with reflected glory. And when you speak of hell well, then your usual face will do. (laughs) Right? Some of us have wonderful, right-postured demeanors for teaching on the doctrine of hell. But we need not have those all the time. Now, Now, this doesn't mean, all right, let me clarify, this doesn't mean that we have to always put a smile on our face and pretend like everything's okay. It doesn't mean that. And there certainly are times 
to grieve. There are times to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn. This is not a command to come in here and just pretend I'm okay, you're okay, we're all okay. Everything is awesome, right? But listen, sorrow and happiness are not contradictory things. And both can be present at the same time in the same person. And when we are embracing the gift of justification, here's what we know, even in times of legitimate sorrow. We know that the reason for our sorrow is temporary, but the reason for our happiness is eternal. This is what we know as a believer. The reason for your sorrow is temporary. The reason for your happiness is eternal. And church, we have to start getting grounded in the joy of our justification. Because I know that Romans 5 is coming, and those of you that are reading ahead in Romans, you know Romans 5 is coming. God is going to tell us to rejoice in our sufferings. <laughs> Listen, if we're going to be ready to hear that, we have to at least start learning to have joy in our justification. We have to start learning to rejoice in our justification, right? Like, if, if we want to be able to rejoice and be glad in the Lord in suffering, we have to start laying the groundwork here. This is, this is like joy and happiness 101, all right? More advanced classes are coming your way. And I know that many of you, listen, I know many of you are going through difficult things, and that was probably maybe my biggest hesitation at trying to preach this passage boldly in the way the Lord was leading is that I don't want any of you to think that I'm taking those difficult things lightly. I want you to know I'm not making light of some of the sorrow and the hardships and the difficulties that we are going through right now. I'm not trying to make light of that. But I am trying to make much of God. And to help you see that the reach of his grace is great enough to reach and touch every valley that you might find yourself in. And I want you to see that even though there's maybe this awful, wretched, sorrowful thing in your life right now, that you can still go look up at the stars and see all of God's kindnesses in your life. For he has called you. He has justified you. He is sanctifying you, and one day he will glorify you. He made the sun to rise every morning of your life without fail. He's given you food and clothing. He's given you birds to sing to you. He's given you laughter and humor to refresh you. He's given you the opportunity of friendship to care for you. He's given you his word to feed you prayer to communicate with you, his church to walk with you, his spirit to dwell in you, his son to lead you, and himself to rejoice and sing over you. Alexander McLaren was a, a Scottish Baptist minister back in the 1800s, and he once advised uh, believers, he said, seek to cultivate a buoyant joyous sense of the crowded kindnesses of God 
in your daily life. I love those, those words, the images they paint, right? A, a buoyant, it's going to stay afloat. A joyous, a, a happy sense of the crowded kindnesses of God. There's so many of them, they're crowded, right? Many like sometimes we feel in this room. The crowded kindnesses of God. This is what I want to see cultivated in our hearts and I think will be cultivated as we, as we embrace and enjoy the gracious gift of justification that was not obtained by works but was obtained through faith. As we enjoy this righteousness that was not inherent to us but has been credited to our account. And this is how I want to be a, a light to my neighbors. You know, we often struggle with knowing how to how to share the good news with our neighbors, how to share about what God has done with, with those that we work with. And what an opportune way this is to, to share with people about the crowded kindnesses of our God who desires for us to be happy in Him. Paul, in writing to the Philippians, he, in Philippians 2, verse 14, he says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Right? This is one of the ways that we shine as lights in the world is by doing all things without grumbling or disputing. And I don't know about you, but, but sometimes small talk with neighbors and coworkers, the low-hanging fruit of small talk is grumbling and complaining right? You, you, you make eye contact with a neighbor, you walk over, you're thinking about what you're going to say, and you just naturally both start complaining about the weather and sports and politics and health and anything else you can think to grumble about. Is this really the fruit that God's gift of justification should be producing in us? Or should it be producing a buoyant, joyous sense of the crowded kindnesses of God? Could being a light to our neighbors look like having hearts that overflow with gratitude? When someone else starts grumbling, could we acknowledge their unhappiness as legitimate, but then share the kindnesses of God that we have experienced today? Could we share how right now in this moment we're finding our joy and our happiness in Him? But so many times, church, we want to pursue happiness our own way. And this is the problem, right? We, we think, we, we know we, we, we want it, but then we think we can get it by going our own way. Pursuing happiness apart from God. And really, our pursuits of happiness apart from God, I think, could be summarized and pictured by the Happy Meal. The Happy Meal is what happiness looks like apart from God, right? It sounds so nice. It's a Happy Meal. It, it, it looks so enticing. But then you get it, and it's this small little burger or whatever, and a toy that breaks before you get home. 
And this is what our pursuit of happiness looks like apart from God. It doesn't last. It always disappoints. And we never actually get the thing that we are searching for. But may we know, church, that real happiness that is real and deep and durable, it is found in God. It is found in God. And I'll, I'll close with a, a quote from C.S. Lewis. You can just listen to this. We won't have it on the screen. But from Mere Christianity. Lewis says, A car is made to run on gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. This was before electric vehicles. We're not getting into that, all right? Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn, the food our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other. That is why it is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about relationship with him. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself, because it is not there. There is no such thing. And so may we know, church, that real happiness that is deep and durable, it is found in God and all the good gifts he gives. And it is enjoyed as we live lives with an awareness that we are surrounded by the crowded kindnesses of God. So church, may all the justified be happy in God. Let's pray.